The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome back to Postcards, the podcast that takes you on a holiday of the imagination. I'm Greg Dickinson. I'm a travel journalist at The Telegraph. And this week, I'm joined by Paralympic basketball player, TV and documentary presenter, Adia Deptak. Now, while you may not pick this up from his very upbeat and approachable persona you're about to hear on this podcast, Adi's life hasn't been straightforward. Born in Lagos, Nigeria, Adi contracted polio at 15 months old. He moved to East London at three years old, where from a young age, he developed aspirations of becoming an athlete, a dream that became a reality after he received his first sports wheelchair as a teenager. Then fast forward a couple of decades and Adi was competing for the UK Paralympic basketball team in 2004. He won bronze. But he's also turned his hand to broadcasting, hosting documentaries all around the world and competing in an endurance show called Beyond Boundaries, which saw him cross Central America through the most treacherous conditions, including the rainforest. We'll hear about that later. As ever, you'll be able to see the photographs we talk about in this episode online. Just follow the link in the show notes. But before Addy and I got onto his photographs, I asked him how lockdown's been treating him. And he told me about a close encounter he had with the virus earlier in the spring. I had a basketball match right at the beginning of March and I I felt awful, absolutely awful driving to the game. And I thought maybe I was dehydrated um, and I was just drinking loads and loads and loads and got to the game and I was almost at the stage where I, I, I could barely see. And then the next day I was shivering. I was um, pretty ill. And I, I, I mean, I rarely get ill. So I, I, I basically isolated. It was myself and my wife for 11 days. People were like dropping off eggs at our doorstep and, 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 and supplies and stuff like that. It was like we were in some sort of survivalist camp in west london um and it was it 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 was a really really um odd time but it actually gave me a period to just you know slow down you know take the batteries out and just and and just chill out and um and then had that slow sort of process to recovery it was funny because it was for about 11 days i was just felt rubbish and then on the 12th day i was fine and i've been fine ever since Oh, I'm I'm really glad to hear that. And have you actually managed to get back on the basketball court yet then? So I found an outdoor basketball court um, in Hammersmith. You know, I used to play on outdoor basketball courts a lot when I was younger and when I was starting out. But this is going to sound a, really, a little bit pretentious, but because people tend to recognise me, you don't often see uh, black guys with dreadlocks in wheelchairs out and about. And because... I'm on TV. It's hard for me to deny. It's not me. It's not me. It's someone else. It's my twin brother. Um, they're like, no, no. So it's hard for me to deny. And then you get that whole thing of, um, basically, it means I can't go out there and hustle and take money off of poor people on the basketball court, pretending that I've never played basketball in my life because they know that I once played for Great Britain. To, to move on to the photos. So the photos you've chosen, they're all from your... 20s onwards um because you say that you didn't travel much before then did you always have the drive to to go off and travel the world yeah most definitely i think um the fact that i i didn't have an opportunity to travel until later on in life made me 
even hungrier to want to to get out there and I would stare out my window in Plasto in our council house and watch planes go past and just think where are they going to you know and just that that have that anticipation and excitement of what it must be like for those people to know that they're going somewhere exciting somewhere new somewhere different and you obviously did end up traveling so let's let's go on to your first photograph so it's actually a newspaper cutting taken from your time playing for rail zaragoza basketball team um the listeners let's will get be able this to right greg let's get this right zaragoza oh. come on Z- Z- okay. Z- right zaragoza. second take rail Zaragoza basketball team uh <laughs> yeah obviously the list the listeners will be able to view all the pictures online but can you can you just describe for them what what's going on in this photograph so in this photograph it's a newspaper clipping and it's taken from uh, my first training session with a wheelchair basketball team called Kai CDM Zaragoza or Real Zaragoza which is in uh, northern Spain I'm a chubby-faced Addy. I, I had that mad start. I just started growing dreads. So they were baby dreads. And, you know, I was just, I was, I was 22. I grew up in East London. Um, this was my first opportunity to go abroad. I was just right at the beginning of my career. And to be in the front cover of this newspaper in, in, in Zaragoza and to have this headline, a jewel in the crown of Kai CDM basketball team. It's just, it was, it was amazing. So cool. So to talk about the journey of how you actually got there, to rewind first to where it all began. When did you actually first pick up a basketball? So um, I was like every young kid in in the UK. I was just passionate about football. Football was my first love. Because I was I was pretty good in goal. I, I used to wear calipers, so I didn't always use a wheelchair. So um, just to paint this picture in your mind, for, for people who don't um, know what calipers are, they're these iron rods, or it's like an iron brace that was a full leg brace. It went all the way up to my hip. Um, it kept my left leg, which was my weak leg, which had been affected by polio. It kept it rocks. It kept it straight, dead straight. And when I was in goal, I could move pretty quickly. I was very agile. I had great reflexes, but I couldn't keep up with my friends when we covered long distances. And what we used to do is we used to nick shopping trolleys. So if you have to pay for shopping trolleys these days, put a pound in it. It was probably because of our series of taking shopping trolleys back in the 80s. I would jump in the shopping trolley and my mates would race me through the streets because it was the fastest way to get around. And we were stopped by a bus with two people in it and it had Newham Rollers wheelchair basketball team written on the side. And there were two hippie looking people inside the bus. They were two physiotherapists who were based in a school in East London in Canning Town called Elizabeth Fry School. They'd set up a wheelchair basketball team and they'd heard about me. They knew I had a disability, but I went to a mainstream school and they desperately wanted me to play for their wheelchair basketball team. And it just so happened they lived quite close to me and they spotted me as I was being raced through the streets in this shopping trolley um, and asked me if I'd like to try out wheelchair basketball. Initially, I was 
very reluctant because I didn't want to get in a wheelchair and uh, basketball wasn't a big sport in the UK. But they convinced me after months of trying to go to Stoke Mandeville, where I saw some members of the Great Britain wheelchair men's basketball team playing. and was totally blown away by their athleticism, how cool their wheelchairs were and how big their arms were. I mean, these guys had the biggest arms ever. And for a 12, 13 year old boy to see men with big arms and to see these guys who normally in everyday life, people would see as having a disability and would see as uh, have this misconception of these people not being athletic, you know, this was all blown away because these guys were better athletes than any able-bodied person I'd seen. And from that moment on, I think I was probably about 12 or 13, I fell in love with the sport and that's all I wanted to do. Wow. And then so you stuck with it and then fast forward a few years, you're signed for this Spanish team at the age of 22, right? So can you tell us what it was like? You get off the plane, you arrive in Zaragoza. What, what was it like that first day? I, I went there. I couldn't speak a word of Spanish. I knew nobody uh, in Zaragoza. I hadn't heard of Zaragoza um, before I went there. First of all, they put me up in a youth hostel, which was quite scary because it was in a quite rough area of that Zaragoza. And then after that, this was only for a few days, but after that, they found a family for me to live with in a village just outside of the main city, Zaragoza. It was called Baldefero. And they had this family, really lovely family. They took me in and the idea was I would learn Spanish living with them and I um, you know, would just fit into the culture. And they had a young son called Julio and Julio was nine years old. First of all, he hadn't seen a black person before, not in real life, maybe on TV. And then he had a wheelchair basketball guy who was in the newspapers living in his house. I remember he took me out of the house and took me round the village and just paraded me round to everybody. Look who's staying at our house. Look who's staying at our house. We've got this wheelchair basketball star. Look, he's black. Look, he's dreadlocks. It was all of that. And it was... um. Yeah, it was a it was a mad mad experience in in Spain. But I I I, I loved every minute of it. I learned to speak Spanish. You know, I I grew up as a person. My mind was opened by this experience of of living in this other country. Um, it's like my second home now. I've got some really really good friends there. Yeah, it was just one of the best experiences of my life. I could keep listening to this for ages, but we should move on to photograph two. So for this one, we've got a shot of you. You're leaning at a sort of 45 degree angle on what appears to be a slightly precarious rock face. with, And there's kind of nothing but clouds in the background. Um, can you tell me a bit what's going on in this shot? So this is me on the side of Volcano Concepcion in Nicaragua. I'm in a, a bright red t-shirt i've got my team buddy carl Sachs, who's a single leg amputee he's just above me and he's tying off our safety line because the volcano is so steep at this point basically we had to worry about people who are above us dislodging rocks and if they dislodged a rock that rock would fly past us and we've got our helmets on and if it hit hit any of us it would either take us out or kill us immediately and it's so steep you can just see the horizon 
as well in the background and I'm lying on my side and I'm looking up at Carl and thinking, make sure you tie that line properly. And what brought you to this crazy situation on the side of a volcano in the first place? This was the last section of a journey that I went on for a BBC Two documentary called Beyond Boundaries. 11 people are about to make history, attempting a journey that's never been done before. Get there, get there, get there, get there. It's not a case of, let's just try our best. Best isn't good enough here. Now we had amputees, we had uh, people with visual impairments, hearing impairments, arm amp- amputees, leg amputees, uh, people with paralysis. And we had to travel from one side of Nicaragua, from the Atlantic side to the Pacific side, through the centre or, or, or of this really beautiful country, which meant we had to travel through the mosquito rainforest and through amazing villages. And on the final stage, we had a volcano, which we, we needed to climb. We, we'd set off at 5 a.m. in the morning. We had until 2 p.m. in the afternoon to reach the top. Our expedition leader said that if we, hadn't, if we didn't reach the top by two o'clock, then we'd have to abort the journey. I started off in these jungle wheelchairs that were designed for me by a company called RGK with these big chunky tires. It had never been done before because it's not the norm to be designed to push through primary rainforests and up mountains and stuff. And they were like, well, okay. <laughs> yeah. And, but anyway, they created this amazing four-wheeled wheelchair. And I had this sort of naive, we all did this naive idea, because it's never been done before, that we'd be able to get up this volcano within the wheelchair with the help of my uh, other expedition colleagues. They would pull and push me up and I would push it at the same time. And we set off, as I said, at five in the morning. And after about two hours, we'd only covered, I think it was about 10 or 15 meters um, because the terrain was so just so arduous, so rough and rugged and 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 just well what you'd expect from a volcano and the expedition leader came down and he said to the group look we've got two options here either you all abort the expedition and go back down because at this rate you're not going to make it up there by two and after that if you don't get up there by two it'll be unsafe for you to come back down or Addy goes back down on his own and you guys go and complete the journey without him. And I suddenly at that moment was just like, and there were cameras pointed at me, um, this was gonna be on TV. And I suddenly just, I felt crushed. I felt, it felt like all of my insecurities from when I was younger, of people constantly telling me that I couldn't do stuff because of my disability. It was all coming to the forefront and i don't know what happened an automatic reflex came and i just jumped out of the wheelchair ignored uh, ken and just decided to crawl up the volcano on all fours and because it was a live volcano it was boiling hot there were sulfurous fumes coming out of the volcano um, it was burning my hands burnt my backside everything and 
the guy who's in that picture with me is Carl Sachs. He's a single leg amputee and he was my buddy and we both basically crawled for six hours up the side of this volcano. And that was at one of the steepest points in that picture. We were basically at the same level as the clouds. And that was the point where I was looked down and just thought, what on earth have I got myself into? How am I ever going to complete this? Um, but we reached the top of the volcano, at, I think one minute past two. It was just, oh, it was utterly exhilarating. I don't know if any of the, any of the listeners would have ever been to the top of a volcano, but what an incredible experience. One, it's quite horrendous because the sulfurous fumes are almost choking. They almost overwhelm you. But also because the environment of a volcano, sulfur and sulfur-rich soil is perfect for insects. So all the insects up there were huge. They were three times the size of the insects that you'd see down on, on normal land. So moths and butterflies were like the size of bats. It was it was nuts. And then when you look down the rim of the volcano, you know, you just see the fiery um, embers of its of its insides. And and you, it was just a sight to behold. You know, it was just wow. It, one of the most empowering moments of my life. I was in tears at the end of it. I was just in complete tears. And what a message for young people watching it who might be in wheelchairs. Just like, don't give up. If you need to, get out, crawl it. Like, you can still do it. Well, I, I think the message is for everyone, not just people with disabilities. And yeah. I always say that all of us have our own metathorical volcanoes um, that lay ahead of us that we have to climb. And it's not so much about not giving up. It's about don't allow yourself to not do something for fear of failure you know because a lot of us hold ourselves back a lot of us have dreams have things that we want to achieve we want to overcome but we're worried about if we do it and we don't and we and we don't succeed but i am someone who throws myself into challenges and sometimes when i'm halfway through it i'm like blooming hell what have i let myself in for here but i think sometimes that's the best way be in that place where there is a slight fear that things might not go wrong because that's when you find out who you really are. And as we've heard, you've really lived this philosophy out in your own life, which is just amazing. But one thing I wanted to know is, obviously you've been in loads of these kind of nail-biting scenarios on your travels. Have you ever actually felt really in, in danger of your life? I was almost kidnapped in, in Mexico. I had to be evacuated from a hotel at 3 a.m. in the morning in Mexico City. And yeah, that was pretty nuts. Some people in the hotel were bribed by some local gangsters who'd seen me and probably thought because I was in a wheelchair, I was vulnerable. And um, it was a pretty crazy situation getting the Mexican police to come and evacuate me and and also having to get the, the production team in the UK to verify that they were the actual Mexican police and they were just other people who were part of the kidnap group and being told, being told by our fixer 
our local fixer that actually, you know, it wouldn't have been so bad. It would have just been a, a, a good kidnapping. And I was like, <laughs> when I said to her, what do you mean by a good kidnapping? She said, well, they would have probably just taken you to a cash point and made you draw out all of your money. I don't think they would have harmed you or anything like that. And I was like, yeah, I don't really feel relieved at that reassurance <laughs> you've given me there. So that was nice. Man, that definitely does not sound like it would have been a good kidnapping to me either. Right, Addy, it's time for us to come on to our third and final photograph. So you're pictured here surrounded by a group of men and boys. Some are holding their fists up to the camera. Tell me, what's going on here? So I am in DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. I'm in Kinshasa in the capital. And I am with a guy called Kibo Mango. And he is, or he, or he was, the Central African boxing, I think it was middleweight champion. And he was known as like the one-eyed champion because uh, he's got one eye and he, um, he beat everyone in in Central Africa when he was competing as a boxer. And he's got an amazing story. He's a former child soldier. He was basically kidnapped when he was, I think it was like nine or 10 and taken into the jungle to fight um, the war. And he was given a, an assault rifle at about 10 years old, given loads of drugs um, and told that if he didn't fight, he would be killed and his family would be killed. And, and, and he was forced to, to fight um, for about five, six years and lived a really horrendous life. He lost his eye in an explosion during combat while he was fighting in the war. And then I think in the melee that ensued during that explosion, he managed to escape. And, and and get out and when he, he got back to Kinshasa and tried to rebuild his life uh, where well, he first of all he, he decided to box and he became a boxer ended up winning becoming super successful um, and then uh, at the end of his career he decided to set up a boxing club to help rehabilitate young kids who'd been impacted by the war Kids who'd been, who'd lost their childhood, who'd been forced to kill people and fight from the ages of 9, 10, 11 years old. Young girls who'd seen horrendous sexual violence, who'd also been forced to fight fight as well. And he he realised that boxing had helped him so much, giving him discipline, giving him a community to be around. Um, And he's just this incredible charismatic initially quite an intimidating looking guy but just just so beautiful considering everything that he'd gone through in his past it was uh, yeah it was amazing so in that picture i'm surrounded by kibo i've got i'm sitting next to kibo mango and he's wearing his uh, his boxing gown which is a really colorful uh, boxing gown and i'm surrounded by all of his protégés all of the young kids um who he's um mentoring and they're all in the boxing stance you know with their with their fists up and yeah i remember that day it was such a beautiful day sweltering hot um but what what an, a, an amazing amazing experience meeting those kids meeting those people so the DRC's obviously had this hugely difficult recent history. I think the, the FCO actually warns against travel to large parts of the country. How did you find it? Experience, what was the experience like? 
the IC is one of the most amazing places I've ever been to. And it's heartbreaking. You know, it's not just their recent history. You know, for hundreds of years, you know, they have the resource curse. Um, they, 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 it, it, DRC has every resource or mineral known to man in that, in that country. Everything you, we, we exploit from this earth is there. Gold, oil, gas, you know, all the minerals is there. And because of that, the world has basically pillaged that country. You know, it, it, King Leopold did it, you know, centuries ago, causing tor torment and turmoil in the country. And then more recently, it, it started within themselves where they had internecine conflict, fighting over the resources, fighting over land. And so, you know, to see it initially, to see this country that's been ravaged on the outside is, is, is sad because, you know, you, you see some dilapidated buildings you see some some of the roads that need work on but then you delve deeper and you meet the people they're extraordinary they're extraordinary they are colorful the culture they the music um, they have a group of people called sappers they basically live in some of the poorest parts of of kinshasa but they dress in real high high-end fashion they every penny they earn they save they, they they use to buy that stuff they were they, they were brilliant to me and then right to when you go to the national stadium and you go to that national stadium and you realize the history that's where muhammad ali fought george foreman you know there's there's fa that famous fight the rumble in the jungle took place there when it used to be called zaire you know, it's so much history. And then you go up to Goma um, and you go to the, the famous rainforest there with its volcano in there. I got to see gorillas in the jungle uh, wow. in, in, in that rainforest. You know, literally I was about 10 feet away from orphaned gorillas that were being retrained to go back into the wild. It, it's just, just such, such a beautiful place with so much to offer you know, physically in terms of the landscape, but also, more importantly, in terms of the people. I wanted to speak to you a bit as well about um, Lagos and Nigeria, because you obviously, you were born there and moved over at the age of three. Um, How do you find going back to Nigeria? Nigeria is um, it's a special place because it's always going to be a part of me. You know, I, I, I kind of say, you know, if one day I write an autobiography, it'll be something like, um, you know, born in Lagos, made in London, something like that. Because, yeah, it, it's the place of my birth. And when you go, when I go back there, I, I feel welcome and I feel a lot of familiarity. I, I do also feel frustrated with, you know, the fact that Nigeria is potentially the wealthiest country in, in, in Africa, you know, the largest population in, in Africa with so much potential and yet with infrastructure problems and, you know, unsettled government, you know, they, they, they haven't been able to make the progress that they should make, you know, and you look at Lagos and you just think you see so many people who are so intelligent, who have so much to, to, to offer. And, you know, it, it because of the obstacles that lay ahead of them, it's so difficult. And I, I, I do, in a way, 
Sometimes I have to thank my lucky stars that my parents were able to bring me to the UK to give me the opportunities. But I, I also, you know, really want to help the people from Lagos, you know, to, to try and progress, especially the people with disabilities. I wanted to ask you about that. Like, we have a lot of we'll have disabled listeners to the show, but also listeners who work in the travel industry. Are there any kind of really straightforward changes from a travel point of view that either hotels or planes or restaurants can make to make life easier, just a whole world easier for people in wheelchairs? I think in general, they need to have a consistent policy around airlines around the world. Because uh, to give you an example, you know, some airlines want to take your wheelchair off you as soon as you arrive at the airport and put you into some manual wheelchair where you get pushed around by a, a porter, which is, you know, it takes away your independence, takes away your dignity because, yeah. you know, if you want to use the bathroom, they have to push you. And I, I fight to for now wherever I go to make sure I stay in my wheelchair until I get to the aeroplane until I get to the to the gate and and and, and get boarded but also uh, I, I suppose what I'm really asking is for the airlines to listen to their customer you know listen to the person of disability who has the disability and 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 ask them what they need if you don't do that word of mouth gets round if i find an airline that treats me well or an or a, or a holiday company that treats me well i will tell all my other disabled friends that's the place to use Addy, one final question i wanted to ask you before we let you go so as we emerge from lockdown is there is there anywhere that you're dreaming of going in the near future anywhere that i'm dreaming of going um if I ever plucked up the courage space would be quite nice. Um, <laughs> more of the British Isles. Can you believe it? I've hardly done any places around the British Isles. I've not been to the Lake District. Really? Never been to the Lake. I've been to all these places around the world, and I've not been to the Lake District. Oh, man. They're beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, if I could push through a Nicaraguan jungle, I should be able to get around the Lake District. <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, Addy, thank you so much for sharing your postcards with us. No worries. Thank you, guys. Next week, I'm joined by the one and only Miriam Margulies. Now, true to form, Miriam took me on what I can only describe as an unfiltered journey through her life in travel. She told me about her love affair with Australia. She gave me some behind-the-scenes experiences shooting the Real Marigold Hotel and she also told me about a time that she went on a cruise to Israel. Of course, the thing about cruises is, is the cast. In other words, the other passengers. And they were all dentists' wives from New York. And all they could say to me is, what are you doing? Reading a book. You're all, every time I see you, you're reading, reading. What's the matter with you? You should be dancing. You know, go find a boyfriend. There's lots of nice men. Look at the sailors on the boat. What are you doing? Reading, reading. Postcards is presented by Greg Dickinson and produced by Pete Norton and Theodora Leludis. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a rating and a review where you're listening or tell a friend about the podcast. And remember that you can see all of the photos discussed in this episode online via the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening.